Hi, this is Kirk Walker, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Welcome, and thank you for coming back to my podcast, Level Playing Field. Level Playing Field is my podcast where I interview LGBTQ athletes and sports personalities. My name is Randy Boos, and I created this podcast earlier this year, and each week I interview someone from the LGBTQ sports community, and we just talk about their life, we talk about what impacts them, and we talk about what they're working on now. This episode, I had the privilege of having Kirk Walker as my guest. Kirk is currently assistant softball coach for UCLA Bruins. In this interview, we talk about growing up in Southern California. We talk about his time working with women athletes, not just in softball, but women athletes in general at UCLA. We talk about his experience being the head coach up in Oregon State. We then talk about um, coming back to UCLA as the assistant softball coach. By the way, currently I am recording this on Sunday. And this will come out on Tuesday. UCLA is now into the College World Series. We talk about that. They beat James Madison over the weekend, though, and they are advancing to Oklahoma. So hopefully you follow him and the UCLA Bruins in the College World Series. Um, One of the things that most impressed me about Kirk with my interview is there are some people in this world who just give lip service. They talk about having passion and giving support to, you know, whatever cause it is, whether it's LGBT issues, whether it's uh, women in sports or just women in in life. Kirk is someone who is 100% authentic. His adoration, his love, his support, and just uh, how in awe of these women he is that he works with, that he coaches, um, and that he calls friends. I hope with listening to this, you get the same feeling as I did, just how much he loves what he's doing and what an experience he's having. This really appears to be what he was meant to do, and he's just a great person. I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we get to it, though, let me say a quick thing. If you like these episodes I do, first of all, I love doing them. Um, I'm thankful that the audience is growing, but if you can keep sharing the episodes If you can like and follow and share on Facebook and do the same on Instagram and Twitter, I am at LPFpod on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Level Playing Field Podcast on Facebook. Anyways, without further ado, here is my chat with Kirk Walker from UCLA Softball. All right, welcome, Kirk, to my podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. The way I like to start this podcast is I always like to to start the story with your earliest memory. What's the earliest memory you have as a child? Uh, earliest memory I have as a child? Um, I don't know, probably uh, playing in the backyard with my uh, brothers and sisters. How many brothers and sisters did you have? Uh, two older brothers and a younger sister. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley, um, Woodland Hills. Were you involved in sports at an early age? Uh, Yeah, we were always uh, grew up around sports and involved in sports. My dad uh, was playing competitive rugby, actually. Um, I can remember that growing up, going to the rugby field. And uh, my brothers were always playing football or baseball, always involved in sports. And uh, obviously, that's kind of how I got my first introduced 
to being around sports was through my family. And that was at the earliest memories I can remember. It was always centered around sports. What sports did you play as a kid? Um, I played a little bit of everything, but um, I actually spent um, my, my teenage years, I was actually really focused on coaching. So I started coaching my sister's teams when she was uh, about 13 and I was 15. I kind of really transitioned and was just coaching and um, got really involved, I think, competitively in, in that aspect and really kind of put my time there rather than in playing myself. But I loved tennis and gymnastics and, and obviously baseball. That's really interesting. What what do you think led you to coaching more than playing? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think um, it, it's certainly a number of things. I, I do really have a great passion for um, helping others um, kind of advance and be better. And I had a, a definite um, knack for being able to see skills and be able to kind of help athletes kind of improve. So I think that was something that drew me there. But, but I think... Um, the reason probably why I geared towards coaching versus playing probably had a little bit to do with my sexuality. Um, subconsciously, I guess I, I kind of always was um, not as comfortable, I guess, um, in that position as being on a team. And so it might have been kind of where I found my comfort level was kind of being around uh, female athletes and kind of helping them uh, improve and get better. So how old again were you when you started coaching your sister? Um, well, I was always around her teams, but I really started coaching competitively when I was about uh, 14 or 15. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That is about the time when sexuality starts to enter your life. What, when was this when uh, you started coaching? What year? Uh, well, that would have been probably, gosh, in about the late 70s, probably 70. Let's see. Let me think about it. Um, I was 17, so probably actually maybe the early 80s. So it was probably about 1980, 79, 80. What What, what was your favorite parts of coaching that young? Um, you know, I I loved being around competitive athletes. Um, I definitely um, found great enjoyment from um, the competitive side of the sport. So the coaching was something that I really kind of was drawn to, and. Uh, I was given a lot of uh, responsibility and, and ability to kind of grow as a coach with the organization that I was with and um, just really found it really rewarding. Um, and I, and I'm very competitive myself, but um, I, I, it's funny because I kind of came about coaching first and then started playing competitively um, later on um, in my career when I was at UCLA and most people kind of go about it the other way. They usually play pretty competitively and then switch to coaching. So um, it was an interesting journey for me. When, so while you were coaching, you were also playing then. And this is obviously you coach softball now. And we'll get to yeah your coaching career in a little yeah, bit. I, I coach. Uh, yeah, I'm still coaching. And uh, I'm still actually playing competitively. So um, during, um, I want to say during probably my uh, first couple of years at UCLA, um, I threw batting practice daily, and that was one of the things that I could always do, a skill that I could always do. And one of the uh, um, alumni who was on the Olymp national team at the time um, said, Kirk, you need to come out and play in, in the men's league in the Valley. She said um, that she played, and it was great for her in the offseason, and they always needed pitchers. So 
I kind of ventured out there, and I think we, there was two nights a week. I think it was Tuesdays and Thursday nights. There was league games going on in Balboa Park, and uh, I went out there and played on a team and got hooked, and I loved it, and got picked up to play on a competitive team and uh, did that for a number of years before I moved to uh, up to Oregon. You mentioned your sexuality got you more into coaching. What was it like to be the kid in your teens in the early 80s, maybe coming to terms with your sexuality? Well, I wasn't dealing with it at all, to be honest with you. So um, I was pretty oblivious. And I think one of the things that I, I, I believe in my personality, I'm, I'm very convicted and I'm very um, passionate about whatever I'm doing. So I put all of my energy into coaching um, so much so that I really wasn't dealing with, you know, my personal life in terms of dating or my sexuality in any way. So all of my focus, and my energy went into coaching. And um, I guess that was always kind of my, um, I guess, outwardly excuse of why I wasn't dating somebody or why I wasn't, you know, um, exploring more on my own personal life was I was just so committed and focused on coaching. So you weren't even doing the typical like dating girls at that time either. No, I really wasn't. I mean, I, I had close friends in high school and, you know, I went to all the, the proms and the dances and things like that, but I wasn't really um, actively dating anybody. And it, it just kind of was just a non-issue. What was it like for you growing up? Uh, I mean, I grew up, I had a, had a great, um, great upbringing, great opportunity uh, in a very um, upper middle class family, very um, family oriented. Um, we were very fortunate. I didn't really want for anything. Um, we certainly weren't wealthy, but we certainly weren't hurting either. Um, so great suburb, suburbia life, um, family, friends, vacations, coaching, sports, just, you know, a very supportive family life, really no drama in growing up at all in my life. It honestly, it was really typical for that, that time. I grew up, I was born in the seventies, grew up kid and a teen in the eighties as well. Yeah. And it really was, we played outside all day and yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest, my memories back to that, you know, that period of time was, I think my biggest me uh, memories of anything that was negative, you know, there was obviously, I can remember Watergate, and I can remember, um, you know, the gas, gas rationing, mm -hmm. and those are kind of things. But, you know, in my personal daily life, there really wasn't a lot that was really um, a burden or a challenge for me, to be honest with you. I was very fortunate to have... Uh, supportive parents that um, made a good living and were always there and always around. So you grow up and high school was, was normal for you? Nothing? Yeah. It, it, the, you know, my sister, um, my sister was two years younger. And when I was in, I guess, let's see, I was going into the eighth grade. My sister was going into the sixth grade and there was, um, you know, busing was kind of a, a mandatory busing was kind of a thing that was kind of coming to play in LA city. And my sister's class was going to be bused to a school farther away. And my mom really didn't have any desire to have that happening. So she decided uh, to go ahead and move us to a private school or move her to a private school in the, in the San Fernando Valley. And I said I would go too, so that she didn't have to go by herself. And so we both kind of transitioned. I was in the eighth grade. And um, so the next year I obviously moved into the high school that was at the same private school. And I spent my four years there. My sister actually transferred back when she entered high school. She transferred back to play um, softball at El Camino Public School. 
And I just stayed because I was student body president and I was, uh, you know, yearbook editor and I was doing all those things at the high school at the time. So I, I stayed there at the private school and, and had a great, um, great high school experience at a very small uh, Christian high school that, um, you know, allowed me to really be great academically and was very supportive of my coaching. And um, I was very involved in school activities and, and friends with the teachers. And so it was like, a, again, another pretty fortunate, privileged opportunity. It seems like your whole life was just geared to do what you're what you're doing now. I well, mean, I, I, yeah, I think definitely looking back on it, I think, um, you know, my dad was always involved with, uh, you know, our Indian guides or coaching the teams or the YMCA teams. And my mom got really involved as well with coaching. So my mom was a great athlete as well. So I was just always around that and sports. And I think the other thing that I think my parents instilled in me was really doing for others uh, was where they both found their great passion and joys, not just for their kids, but for other, you know, kids in the neighborhood or other athletes. And so I kind of think that's just kind of how I always grew up around that. And um, so for me, it was just kind of part of what you do. And uh, I, I still to this day have great joy in helping others achieve, you know, great success and not necessarily worrying about my own success. So as you start to get ready to graduate high school, is UCLA your only choice or? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, So going in, obviously, you know, the end of the junior year, you start to figure out what you want. And I applied to UCLA and I applied to the UC system. And back then you applied once to all of the UC schools and then you kind of ranked them in order that you wanted to go to. And UCLA was my top choice. And uh, I also had been accepted to um, a private college, the same Christian Seventh-day Adventist uh, University, La Sierra University. So I knew that I was either going to go to La Sierra University and, and study um, physical therapy or pre-med. Um, but UCLA was kind of what I wanted. My dad had gone to UCLA and done his master's there. And I'd always grown up a UCLA fan. So there was several other classmates that were applying to UCLA as well. So I thought that would be a a great choice. So I applied there. I was actually denied admission and I was deferred to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. uh, Yeah, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And so I almost went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, but I went ahead and kind of appealed and wrote a letter of an appeal to get into UCLA. And actually uh, in doing so, I, I was actually then admitted and uh, and got into school there at UCLA. So it's kind of interesting because that I just accepted that opportunity to to go to Cal Poly. I, I don't know that I would have gotten involved with coaching if I'd gone to Cal Poly. But um, yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, it is. You mentioned a faith a few times. Was a faith a big part of your life, a Christian faith, a part of your life growing up? Um, I wouldn't say it was a big part of my life, but it, it certainly was a presence. You know, we, my mom um, was Seventh-day Adventist um, and had gone to Seventh-day Adventist schools growing up. And so, you know, it was a part of our lives where we would go to church occasionally, um, but it was not a regular thing. And it was not something that was, you know, I, I would say a major part of our, my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously when we went to school um, in the eighth grade, you know, that was all of a sudden now in high school, I was going to, you know, there was a religion class, you know, that you went to every day. And 
you know, and, and studied the Bible and, and different uh, teachings and things like that. So it became more part of my life, I guess, in high school uh, because of um, obviously going to a private school. Do you think that played any part in your sexuality? Um, you know, I think it certainly played a part in my in my own belief system and I guess in, in my own denial, I guess a little bit. I, I just kind of like anyone else probably that, that goes through that. Um, and certainly at that period of time, I, I didn't really know anybody that was gay and I didn't necessarily see myself fitting into any category that I, you, you would see on TV, you know, or, or in movies, which were very effeminate or very flamboyant or certainly not involved in sports. So I kind of never really saw myself uh, even potentially being in that, in that mindset. Obviously, you know, I had attraction to different um, classmates and different people, but it was obviously fairly mild and nothing really came of it. Um, so it wasn't like I was actively pursuing that in high school either. So mm -hmm. it was just kind of denial. And um, I can look back now, obviously, um, now that I, I know that I'm a gay male, looking back now, I can realize some of my infatuations and, and you know, my crushes or whatever it were, um, that they were more based on my sexuality, whereas I thought they were just like, I thought somebody was very cool and I wanted to spend time with them. So do, do you think it was easier to not deny sexuality, but delay it, I guess, in a way? Because of, I don't know how it was for you and your the church you would go to or the school you would attend, but in the church I grew up in, sexuality wasn't really talked about. Um, you didn't really see it in media, so it was something that it just was out of sight, out of mind. And I think as as kids, especially and maybe even preteens, it just isn't. It's not like thrown in your face how it is now. Yeah, I, I certainly feel like it, it was not a hot topic or it was not in front of our face, either positively or negatively um, growing up. So I, I definitely feel like I would say being at a private Christian high school, it was probably less likely to come up because it was a small school. Now, looking back, I, I know several of my classmates now that are gay that I didn't at the time, I didn't really know that they would have been. And I don't even know if they were aware of it at the time either. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, certainly if I'd been to a larger high school here in Southern California, it's very likely that I would have probably come across somebody that probably was out, a classmate or a teacher or someone that might have actually been out because I would have been obviously in a bigger social setting uh, in a, at a large high school. And so it, I do think it kind of probably played to my, once again, the reason why I decided to stay at the high school I was at it was easy to say I'm already involved with, you know, student body business and the yearbook and I'm already have my friends. So I just stayed, but I'm sure part of that played into the fact of, I didn't want to go back to the, the public school with all, you know, 3000 people knowing that it's very likely that, that I was going to have to confront and deal with things that I was kind of not even aware of. So it wasn't a conscious issue, but I certainly look back on it saying I think it was convenient for me to kind of stay in my bubble, uh, which was very safe and non-threatening in dealing with my sexuality or not dealing with my sexuality, I should say. I read an article. I, I don't know where I read it, but it was about you and coming out and it talked about coming out to your team in Oregon State. 
was that really the first time you came out or was that just the first time you came out to a team? No, it was not the first time I came out. So it, um, several years prior to that, I, I had started to come out to different close friends. And then finally, I had been dating my partner at the time for about, I would say, about four years. And that's when I kind of came out to my parents and my sister. And, and this is st- while you're still at UCLA? No, this is when I was at Oregon State. Oh, okay. Um, and once again, I was at Oregon State, so my my life was very separate from my California family and everything down here. So it was kind of easy for me to kind of just um, explore and be who I was up there without really interfering that with my family. So that was the, probably my first thinking of major coming out was was telling my sister and my parents um, one weekend, and and that was a pretty big deal. But it, after that, it a few of my coaching peers or close friends I would share with, but it was always very, it was not really a big deal. It was always very easy after that, but it was also something that I had not shared publicly. So professionally at work, I think, you know, one of my bosses probably, I think she knew, and uh, there were certain other coaches at Oregon state that I was friends with uh, personally that knew about my partner at the time. But but the one thing I had never done is I had never made a public statement and I had never told my team. And so that was kind of like a big step when I finally came out to my team. That's kind of when the it opened up the door to do the public statement and the, all the articles and all the media attention kind of came right after that. I, I sort of jumped around, but before we go really into heavy into coaching, let, I want to talk about your time at UCLA. Okay. When did you start UCLA? Uh, I was a freshman, started in fall of 1983. Okay. And, um, and then I graduated in 1988. And are you starting to coach basically your first time or so, your first year? Um, so when I, like I said, I, during high school, I had been coaching um, already competitive travel ball. So when I, was, when I was 17, like during my junior year in high school, we won the national championship and I was uh, an assistant coach on that team and so I was very involved at, at the competitive level of uh, girls' fast pitch here in Southern California. So when I was going into UCLA, UCLA at the time had just won um, a national championship the year before in 1982. And they were kind of a, a premier program, but college softball was not the media darling that it is today. And mm-hmm. so... You know, I didn't know very much, but I did know that one of the seniors that was on the team during my freshman year going in, I knew her. I grew up. Um, she umpired and coached at the um, park in Woodland Hills where my sister and I kind of had been around with the rec ball. Um, so I knew she was there. So I reached out um, and and said, hey, I'm coming to school. And she said, yeah, you should come and throw batting practice or reach out to the coaches. And, and I did. In the fall, I kind of made contact with Sharon Backus and just said, you know, this is who I am. And I've been coaching in the summer and I throw batting practice and I'd love to kind of, you know, be a part of the program or help out in any way I can. And just started by going out to practices in the fall. And by the end of the fall, um, Sue Enquist and Sharon Backus were the two other coaches. They said, we'd love to have you kind of adjust your uh, class schedule and travel with us and be with us full time in the spring, if you're interested. And I said, that'd be great. Cause obviously I was focused on competitiveness and I loved the environment. I loved being around it. And 
at the end of my, and then we won the national championship my freshman year. So it was kind of a cool deal. And I was a, a, a student manager. At the end of that first year, they said, we'd like to make this more serious and put you on full ride. And so they put me on full ride and I started working more in the office and just being around uh, Sharon and Sue in the office and coaching meetings and everything pretty much full time while I was in school. And literally by the end of my sophomore year, I kind of hit transition and I was then now like an undergraduate coach and I was actually fully coaching the hitters and the pitchers. So I had kind of transitioned from being a student manager to actually being an undergrad assistant. And it was amazing. You know, we won back-to-back championships in 1984 and 85, my freshman, sophomore year. And then my sister actually came into school during my junior year and she entered UCLA. And, uh, and then we won again, 80, my senior year, 88. And uh, at that point, after I graduated in 19, as I was getting ready for graduation, I was either going to go to grad school for neurophysiology or I was offered a full-time coaching job there at UCLA when I graduated. And I took that, took that position at UCLA. Is that when you really thought that maybe this is your career for life? Um, I, I, it was probably during that period of time. I definitely knew that coaching was in my blood and it was where my passion was. Um, you know, looking back on it, you know, I always talked about being regretful that I didn't go to medical school first and then back to coaching. But I certainly knew at that point in time that coaching was going to be a big part of my life. Um, the sport changed a lot during that period of time um, at the collegiate level. And so, you know, I, I don't know that I was really thinking that coaching could be a career. Uh, but certainly during that period of time, it became more and more apparent that it was uh, a sport that was growing rapidly and that there was going to be more and more opportunity pretty, pretty readily uh, as, as a coaching profession. Was do you think the growth had a lot to do with Title IX or was it something well, else? Sure. I mean, I think Title IX played a part of it. You know, obviously Title IX passed, you know, um, prior to me going into UCLA. But certainly those early 80s were um, were directly in that those years where Title IX was being brought to the attention and was being brought to the forefront and a lot of issues were happening. I, I will say this at UCLA, when I got to UCLA, they had already been through a lot of the changes and women's athletics at UCLA in the, in the early eighties was uh, way ahead of most of the country when it came to uh, women's athletics. So I, I went in there kind of being just overwhelmed by the athletes that I was around. I mean, literally I would, I was with Jackie Joyner and Gail Devers and uh, Ann Myers and Denise Corlett and all these amazing hall of fame athletes that were just there every day in the, in around athletics and every day in the department and people that were all friends. And looking back now, I realize these are some people that were, you know, pioneers and icons and it comes to women's athletics in terms of changing how things were viewed. So I was very fortunate again, to be a part of that change and growth in women's athletics, but I, I never experienced um, women's athletics in a, in a horrible way, like it was prior to Title IX. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and like you mentioned, going to UCLA, I mean, even back then, UCLA was one of the top schools. Yeah, it really was. And, and they, had, they had specifically, you know, there was a, the department was kind of split where there was um, uh, women's athletics uh, was headed up by Dr. Judith Holland, and she was incredible and, and progressive and 
had a great passion and, and vision for uh, women's athletics. So, yeah, there was a definitely a, a still a lot of inequity uh, in terms of Title IX things, for sure. But it, it was changing fast and rapidly uh, at that period of time. And compared to the rest of the country, there was uh, far more opportunity at UCLA for, for women than there was at a lot of places. You know, I'm wondering with coaching and coaching students, when do you start dating? Well, I never, I never was dating. I never pursued or really kind of, once again, even really started to even process or deal with my sexuality during that period of time. Obviously, I became um, more aware that I probably did have an attraction to guys, but I was pretty much denying that uh, access to that or, or doing anything. So here I am living at UCLA and working here at UCLA, and I'm all of you know four miles from West Hollywood, and I never ventured over there. I never explored that part of my life. You know, and it was also, honestly, it was, you know, the kind of the height of the AIDS um, epidemic as well. So there was all kinds of reasons why I was just um, shutting that part of my life down and focusing all my energy on coaching. So I spent all of my time with the athletes coaching. Um, I was close with the athletes. I spent time with them socially. But the minute that they were going to go and go to the parties or go to do anything, uh, I guess, as a normal student, I kind of would always just kind of, you know, say my goodbyes and head home um, and focus on my academics. So I really, my social life was, um, was softball and it was also my professional life. So mm -hmm. it, it really, I, I was very isolated and it really didn't start dating or exploring that until I moved away to Oregon. You mentioned AIDS and for us, AIDS has always been a big deal with sexuality and, and part of the, the gay history. How do you compare the 80s, early 90s, to kids today who, with the creation of PrEP and better HIV medication, where it's not it's not a death sentence anymore? You what know, are your I, thoughts on that? Well, clearly, I mean, how, how uh, HIV is, is viewed um, uh, today, or certainly I would say with the last, certainly the last, you know, 10 years, how how HIV is viewed is completely different. And so I think there's generations of kids coming of age that have never known the fear or the, I guess, the experience of losing friends or family members or people that they knew uh, to, to an HIV um, positive diagnosis. So, you know, at this point in time, the world really has changed in the U.S. in terms of that viewpoint. Obviously, HIV positive status doesn't mean a death sentence, clearly, but that's because of the medical treatment mm -hmm. that's available and, and how science has progressed and what we've learned about the disease, you know, obviously as it transitions to AIDS. So I, I think it's just, once again, the positive benefits have also created, I guess, a, a lukewarm concern for the HIV status. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not really by place or uh, thought process to kind of make a judgment on it, but it certainly is different. It's a different world. Yeah. And obviously there are many, many, many um, thousands of people that live today with HIV positive and we're so thankful and amazingly fortunate to be 
having access and in certainly here in the US that widespread that we have. Yeah, exactly. Let me go back to your college experience. How many how many years were you at UCLA with the four years of school and so I, yeah, I, five years of school. It took me five years to graduate. Okay. Um, so I was there for five years as an And I, I imagine it's because of your coaching time as well. Yeah, I wasn't in a rush to get out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I was having a great time. I loved it. I was passionate about it. I wasn't in a rush. I was on full scholarship, so it wasn't a financial burden to my parents. So, I, yeah, I took the kind of the minimum class load all the way through, and I graduated in five, and I graduated with honors. And so academics were important to me, but I wasn't in a rush to get out. Mm-hmm. So I was there for five years um, as an undergrad, and then I coached for an additional six years uh, full-time when I graduated. So I was there for a total of 11 years, and then um, the opportunity to be the head coach uh, came up at, at Oregon State. And... Honestly, there was an NCAA legislation that passed my last two years at UCLA that was called the restricted earnings position. And it turns out it, it was a, a violent constitutional violation by the NCAA and they were later sued. But it basically said that in our sport of softball, you could have two full-time coaches and your third coach, which is what its position I, I was in, could only make um, like $16,000 a year. And that was... That had to be capped. And at the time, I had, was making a lot more than that. So my salary got cut because of the NCA um, saying that I couldn't make more. And at that point is when I started to say, I, I think I'm probably going to have to look at coaching somewhere else if I'm going to coach because I don't think I can live in L.A. on $16,000 a year. Oh, yeah. Uh, so had it not been for that NCA policy, which was actually then overturned after I left, I probably would have never left, but I did leave and I had a great opportunity to go to Oregon State and as a head coach, that program was um, horrible and they were at the bottom of the country and, but they were on the West Coast and they were in the Pac-10 the Pac conference at the time. So that was something that was enticing to me. So um, yeah, it's, it opened up a new journey for me. And so you're what, 29, somewhere around there? Yeah, exactly. What was your first year in Oregon like? Um, it was rainy. <laughs> um, it, you know, it was great. I, I was so passionate about coaching and so driven competitively. Um, I, all I can remember back in those those early years was just working just nonstop and building the program and trying to get recruits in there and trying to get upgrades to the facility and upgrades to the budget and, you know, just was going full go nonstop. And so those first couple of years, I, I really didn't pursue anything socially, but I certainly started to realize there was a lot of isolation on my part because now I'm the head coach. So I'm not spending time socially with the athletes any longer. Um, and my time with the athletes was much more professional than it was a combination of coaching and friends. And what I started to realize was that there was a part of my life that had I had not explored and was missing, and that was my sexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's obviously when I started to, back then, there was voice personals. Uh, there wasn't internet, and there wasn't, uh, um, you know, the social or the dating apps that exist today. It was all done on a voice personal where you called in and listened to someone's voice describe themselves and their, their, what they looked like and what they liked to, to do socially. And then you responded back, and then if you happened to 
match with them, you got a phone call, a message back like a week later that they would be interested in, hey, maybe we should meet for coffee. Um, so that's kind of what started it for me was was being able to kind of start to explore that a little bit. I was living in Corvallis, so it's a small town of 50,000, a very conservative town, and there was no real um, exposure there to any LGBT individuals, um, certainly that I was aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, I, I and no, I take it no local local gay bar or anything. Yeah, like that. not at all, not at all. And so I ventured up to Portland, obviously, and uh, started to um, you know meet people up there or try and go on dates. Or um, I would occasionally go to um, you know a couple of the the gay bars that were up in Portland, you know, and literally sit there by myself and be completely overwhelmed, and then sneak away and leave on my own. Um, and head back to Corvallis. So that was the early years for me, obviously, uh, in exploring. And then Portland is what, a couple hours away? It was about, it was 80 miles. So it was about an hour and a half. Yeah. Was there any fear of being spotted by someone from the college? Oh, sure. You know, um, but I I kind of was able to rationalize that pretty quickly, obviously, because of the distance. So Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I became a little bit more confident, a little bit less fearful. And and it was about, um, and I'm kind of guessing here, but it was probably about my fourth year up there when I, I met my, my partner at the time, Brandy, and we started dating and, and hanging out. And he had great friends in Portland. And I, I literally would go up to Portland and I felt like um, I could be who I was up there and kind of be connected to his friends. Some of the his friends actually... Um, they knew who I was at Oregon State and who I was coaching, and I wasn't that fearful about it at that point of time. I, I kind of um, had been less fearful of that uh, discovery. But the people that did know I, were obviously gay, either female, former athletes, or um, gay men. So I wasn't really concerned, even though they knew that I was a coach at, at Oregon State and uh, all those kind of things. Oh, yeah. So you're already seeing a social change as well. I mean, for sure. Absolutely. And gay, gay characters on TV, the real world happened. I absolutely. Mean. Absolutely. And that's and those are the things that started to once again, make it um, a little bit more difficult for me to stay in denial. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that was still challenging and the thing that was hard was, I, you know, when it came to the sports world, there were not a lot of um, role models. Obviously, Dave Copay wrote his book, you know, in the, the late 70s. Um, Billy Bean uh, wrote his book um, right about that time. Um, there was a an umpire, Dave Pallone, that had written a book that was a major league umpire. So those were some of the probably those early memories back then um, that I I guess that I wasn't the only gay man in sports, but mm-hmm. I certainly knew it wasn't extremely common either. Part of the job as a coach is recruiting. Was there a fear that? someone would find out for recruiting or was yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the recruiting, uh, my ability to be an effective leader, my ability to kind of, um, you know, be respected, all those fears would come into play. But certainly the recruiting, um, I, I was pretty fortunate because my, my record and my history at UCLA and then what I was accomplishing at Oregon State was extremely positive. So I, I had a great record and I was really well respected. So the recruiting was actually relatively easy for me. I don't know that I ever kind of really feared 
the recruiting side of things. And I don't know that I ever really feared the negative, negative recruiting that might come from being a gay male. But at the same time, I wasn't really, I hadn't made a public statement and I wasn't sharing it. So it was kind of like I was leading two lives. And there's a lot of, a lot of lesbians in women's athletics that were doing the exact same thing that I was, which is mm-hmm. they had their personal life, um, which way they were very comfortably, you know, either dating or had a partner or, or friends and, you know, that side of their life. And then when it came to work, it was very professional and it was, you know, their, their personal life didn't intermix. So that was my, those were my role models were, were all the, the females, lesbians that were in our sport or in athletics in general, in, in all the different sports. And I knew those people and I was friends with those people. And, and so I saw how they, they, manu- they managed their life. So it, it was, that's what I did. So that's where I would say I probably had a greater advantage over a gay man that was coaching in men's athletics back then, mm-hmm. because they didn't, they once again had even less role models because they didn't necessarily know all the lesbians personally that were coaching in the same <laughs> department as them for the most part. So I, I was very fortunate again. I, I, I feel like I had the great privilege to be in women's athletics and meet so many amazing hall of fame icons, incredible women who happened to be gay and happened to be coaching, but they still weren't out. So being out didn't have to happen to be gay and in sports. It just meant you have two lives and you just keep them separate. And that's what I did in the beginning. So when you start to come out to people, uh, you mentioned family and other professionals in, in the industry. Are those some of the people you go to first? Or are these lesbians that um, coach actually, also? And- I, ironically, uh, there was a few. Um, some of the first people that I came out to, though, were um, some of the Olympians that I had been coaching. So like, you know, Lisa Fernandez and, and uh, um, Dot Richardson and Sheila Cornell. And there were a lot of Olympians that I was around and were good friends with and that I had been coaching. And those were some of the people that I came out to first. And obviously they weren't um, lesbians and so I didn't come out to them because they were gay. I came out to them because I was, they were close friends and I wanted them to know and, and know who I was. And then slowly, you know, there would be a lesbian coach that I was really, had been really good friends with. And I thought, okay, I need to tell this person that I'm dating somebody and they'll think it's cool. So, you know, there was certainly spattering of those conversations as it kind of came up, but it still wasn't really widespread. And it was very hush hush because they had never made a public statement either. They weren't publicly out. So I, I knew that they had a partner and I, I obviously it was not naive, but it, I also didn't want to go, Hey, I know you're gay. And so am I, because that would have been really awkward. Um, so it was really kind of an issue of, Oh, how are things going? Things are great. Actually, I've been dating somebody. I'm seeing someone and, and he's blah, 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 blah. And I could see them, them kind of perk up and go, Oh, that's great. That's awesome. And then they might share, you know, about their spouse or their partner or whoever it was. So it, it kind of became an interesting, um, I guess, subset of friends that I had within the coaching world that were, or in the athletic world that were also um, living two lives. Um, so I, I got pretty comfortable at not hiding it, but I wasn't sharing it. And And a few years before I came out to my team and then the public statement that came out like in 2005. So I would say, Certainly during the 2000s, um, early 2000s, I was not hiding it, 
um, but I wasn't sharing it. So if somebody ever asked me point blank, are you gay? I would have said yes. Um, I wouldn't have lied about it. So I spent several years in a very comfortable place where I wasn't fearful that somebody would find out. But at the same time, I was fearful enough that I didn't kind of openly make a statement or share it um, to the entire world. What's that moment like then when you finally tell your team, you finally have the public statement where you don't have the two separate lives? Yeah, that's really interesting. So it was, um, so this is a kind of a funny full circle. So it was 1999. I met Sid Ziegler without sports. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew him. I met him when I was down here recruiting and we had uh, exchanged messages on email or something. And, and he had always said to me, he said, Hey, I'm starting this new website called Outsports. And I said, I think you'll really like it. And that was a period of time where I, once again, I wasn't hiding it, but I wasn't necessarily sharing it. So that, that was 1999. And for 10 years or, or a big, not 10 years, but certainly a chunk of time there until 2005, he kind of held my secret and he kind of held that I was coaching and was a gay male. And so when I finally told my team, I said, I had told him the only thing that I needed to do before he could do an article would be I needed to tell my team because I didn't want my team to hear about it from anyone else because I was fearful not of losing their respect because I was gay. I was fearful of losing their trust that I had hidden this and someone else had told them. So I was more afraid of losing their trust by hiding it than I was that they were going to be... Um, not accepting of me as a gay man. So that's finally what it was when we were about to adopt, my partner and I, I knew that it was gonna be, um, my photo was gonna be in a public catalog for potential adoptive parents. And at that time I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want one of my team to find out because her sister or her aunt or a friend was giving a child up for adoption and saw my photo in the catalog. So. I wanted to make sure that they heard it from me. And so that's really what the impetus was for actually finally telling my team. It was very scary. It was definitely um, on the same level of telling my parents. And um, it's kind of ironic because this is, this is now like probably almost 10 years since I had told my parents, but it elicited the same anxiety and fear because this was a very important group of individuals to me. And the unknown was really scary. And at the time there was no publicly out college coach. So I finally, I told them it went great. They, all they cared about was the, the adoption and the baby and when was the baby coming and was it a boy or girl? And that's all they wanted. So it, it, it quickly became a non-issue and I, my confidence kind of went through the roof um, in that first week. And, um, and then it, it kind of, got thrown in my face pretty quickly because immediately Sid said, does that mean I can do an article now? I said, sure. His article led to two days later, uh, the Portland Tribune wanted to do an article and I said, sure. And then ESPN magazine wanted to do an article and I said, sure. And then the New York daily news wanted to do an article a week <laughs> later. And I said, sure. And then logo TV wanted to come out and film a segment. And I said, sure. So it became Unfortunately, it, it was a, a little bit of a, a minor media frenzy um, that hit me really fast. And I just thought, why is this a big deal? Because I'm a gay man coaching in women's athletics. It's really not a big deal. But what I learned and what I discovered was that 
all of the media were very heightened on it because I was um, what they had researched and had told me was that I was the first division one coach to be publicly out and nobody had ever made a statement in the media before. You know, I, I preface this by saying that's what they were. That's what they labeled me. Uh, I, you know, at the time there was a coach, a rowing coach at Michigan, Charlie Sullivan, who had done an article, I believe in vanity fair or something, um, you know, in the late seventies or eighties, but for some reason that failed to kind of hit the internet when you searched out coach college coach, it didn't pull up. So they all kind of gave me that label. And it was funny when they asked me those questions and said, you know, so you're the first out, you know, division one coach. And my response was, Oh gosh, no, no, I'm not. And I laughed. I'm like, no, I know plenty of, of coaches who are out. And they would put the microphone in my mouth and say, who? And I would be like, my God, I guess I can't say because all these people, all these uh, women that I knew that were living this separate life and that had partners or, you know, whatever, they had never made a public statement. And so all of a sudden I was in this weird vortex of I'm not the first one. I know hundreds of other gay coaches but I couldn't say anything because they had never made a public statement. So that's when I realized this is, this is a different world. And I, at that period of time, I stopped complaining about being called the gay coach, which every interview was, you know, you're the gay coach. And how does that mean to be the gay coach? And how do you coach differently now? And what does that mean to be the gay coach? And I'm like, oh my gosh, being gay is just part of who I am. My coaching record and what I do as a professional, that's, what my coaching side is. I just happen to be gay. So I would, I would really be stern about that answer in the beginning because they kept calling me the gay coach. And I said, no, I'm, I'm a Pac-12 coach of the year that happens to be gay. I, you know, and at that period of time when I started to really realize the impact, I was getting hundreds of emails. Um, we didn't really have, you know, direct messaging or Instagram or Snapchat back then. So I got either hard written mail, uh, anonymous mail that came in the mail, or I got emails to my school address, um, hundreds a week from people across the country that it was a big deal. And it was very important because they were working in professional sports or they were working, um, you know, in, in this city and they couldn't be out and they did, thought they were the only one. And I started to realize that if I'm labeled the gay coach, um, it's helping far more people feel not alone than it is um, a negative stereotype that I need to combat and fight. And I, that's when I really started to own that, oh my gosh, this, this platform that I didn't really, it's just who I am, but it's actually giving, creating an opportunity for me to help people, which I go back to the original story of why I got into coaching was helping people. So you can imagine now what that elicited in me and my passion for facilitating and helping others that were closeted or gay in sports and were feeling alone. So that's kind of when I, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier. That's kind of where my passion really kind of to build a network and to kind of create a continuity and ability to be visible was really important to me. And um, Nike was really eager to do the same thing. And so I worked with Nike 
And I also worked with uh, Roger Bingham out of uh, San Francisco to kind of create Equality Coaches Alliance, which was a group for anonymous group for coaches and that happened to be LGBT. And, and it was a very small group in the beginning. And I was the lone college coach in the beginning. But uh, we've we've grown rapidly to over 800 members uh, today. And it's and it's a great group. Uh, and we did the same thing with uh, LGBT student athletes. And that group now is is almost 700 members today. So. Anyways, a lot of my passion went into building those networks and education and advocacy for um, diversity in sports. If people want to get involved with those groups, how do they do that? Well, you certainly they can reach out to me. Um, both groups currently right now are um, are based in in Facebook. So not everybody is in Facebook. We are hoping to uh, kind of transition and move them off offline to be able to be off of Facebook uh, exclusively. But uh, you can reach out to me directly uh, at, at kwalker at athletics.ucla.edu. Uh, um, if you're not a part of Facebook, if you are in Facebook, then they can reach out to me on Facebook. And there are the two groups. One is Equality Coaches Alliance. Uh, it's a secret group, though, so you can't join the group unless you kind of are connected to the moderator, which is myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other group is called Go Space, and it is for uh, current and former LGBT student athletes that were either at the high school or the collegiate level. And uh, both groups uh, are growing daily, and I add people um, constantly during the day and, and introduce them to the group, and it's, it's really powerful. That's great. Can we talk about the adoption briefly? Sure, sure. What was the adoption process like for you guys? Um, so I, I think it was... Um, about a nine-month process for us, ironically. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of laugh about that. But we obviously entered the process as a gay couple. Um, and Oregon open adoption was, it was legal for gay men to adopt. So we pursued that and uh, did all the training and went on to all the seminars and did all the paperwork. It, it was definitely a long process. And um we we finally matched with a uh, adoptive or a, a birth mother that was a young high school girl, and um, so it happened pretty quick. When it happened, we got a phone call the night before that she was going into labor and that she had selected us if we were interested. Um, we said obviously yes, and um, we had to drive up to Seattle the next day to to pick up. Um, our daughter, who had just been born that morning. So it was um, a pretty powerful and quick process once it happened. But it, it, all the formality and the administrative side was about nine months leading up to it. I take it the, the players on the team were excited to meet the new one and oh, yeah, that was, friends and family. She, yeah, uh, Ava traveled with us uh, throughout. She was in the office every day. She was with me, and then she traveled on the road and so yeah, they were they were babysitters and and uh, you know big sisters and everything else to her. So it was definitely became part of uh, the coaching world was uh, Ava being with me. You have all these moments that happen at Oregon State. You know the coming out to family to players. You have the arrival of your daughter. What makes you leave that home you've had for years to go back to UCLA? Well, it's interesting because um, at the time I was at uh, Oregon State and I had been there for about um, 
I guess, 16, 17 years. And I, I signed a big contract with the athletic director, a multi-year contract, and that was going to be my last contract. And it would have taken me to about 20 years of service at Oregon State. And I thought I was going to retire at that point in time. So I had just signed that contract when um, the position at UCLA opened up. And the position that opened up at UCLA was actually my former assistant who had gone down there and um, she was moving on. And I spent the next month or so trying to help the head coach figure out who to hire. The program was a little bit out of sorts. Um, it's always been a dominant program, but they were struggling a little bit. They were losing some athletes to recruits. They hadn't won. Um, so there was a lot of um, questions about what was going on in the, in the program. And I knew that, that I could help. And Sue Inquest, who had been the former head coach there, said to me when I was on the phone one day, she said, she said, Kirk, you're the only one that can do this. Why don't you take the job? And I said, well, that's a little bit tricky because I have a family now and I would be taking a huge pay cut and, you know, on and on and on. So it, uh, it was kind of something that we talked about. And then within about three weeks from that first conversation about it, it went from being kind of a joke and a wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be cool to, oh, my gosh, maybe this can happen. So the athletic department at UCLA was was tremendous and was eager to have me back. And they worked very hard to figure out financially how to make it work. So I had said to my partner, hey, what do you think about this? Because my family was down here in L.A. about moving back to California. And um, it was something that we felt like would be good for our family and, and a good move. And um, I knew that I could make a difference and help the UCLA program kind of get back to its dominance. So I took the position <laughs> and I was very fortunate because um, normally when a head coach leaves a program, they, you know, you don't really have a whole lot of respect or um, appreciation for the school that you're leaving. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was given an amazing opportunity by the athletic director. He said to me, this is your program. You've built it. You've, you've put it on the map. What do we need to do to continue the program? And I, he allowed me to give him the blueprint on who he should hire and where he should go and what, what they should do, um, which was an amazing honor that I'm very thankful for. And the other thing that I was really blown away by was the response that I had from all of the former coaches and former student athletes, um, football, basketball, baseball, um, student athletes that I had been around during that 18 years. Not that I was necessarily super close with, but that knew what I had done for Oregon State and what I had built. And they were, it was amazing to get that outpouring of, of love and admiration, even as I was leaving the job to go to a rival school. So it was pretty overwhelming. And at the same time, I was getting unbelievable praise and admiration from all of the people at UCLA that I had grown up you know, coaching with the people that were in the athletic department still or coaching other sports that were so through the moon um, that I was coming back. So for about a year, I was like, I could do no wrong. Um, I mean, I felt like I, I was the, the luckiest man in the world. And obviously, you know, reality sets in later, but um, it was pretty amazing opportunity for me. How has women's sports and 
softball changed since you first got into coaching? Well, I mean, so amazingly so. Just the, the pure number of athletes competing at the high school level is, has just uh, exploded. I, it's probably 900% growth. I mean, I don't even know what the exact number is, but it's overwhelming. But even at the collegiate level, you know, uh, our national championships in 1984 consisted of 16 teams getting selected, and they were put into eight regionals. So, and then the winner of each regional, that's eight teams, advanced to the College World Series, and that was it. So, you know, obviously we expanded several years in to all of a sudden it was, you know, we got 18 teams in, and then it was 20 teams, and then it was 24 teams, and then a few years later it was 32 and then 48, and then next thing you know, um, we, we make that big jump up to 64 teams. Um, but we saw such a change across the country because the sport was very dominated just by the West Coast. Uh, Fullerton, Fresno State, UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, um, San Diego State, were Long Beach State were all the teams that you always saw at the top uh, in that final eight. Um, and then occasionally there was a Florida State um, or Nebraska that would be in there, or Texas A&M. But we saw the growth of the SEC come into play and adding in, and so that whole region becoming uh, such a dominant force. And then the Big 12 really coming into its own, um, you know, with Oklahoma and uh, Texas and all of those programs being added. So just the pure growth has been just incredible. And I, I almost laugh because it, it was a, just a completely different game um, back in the, you know, the mid to early 80s. Mm-hmm. And right now we should mention that you guys are currently in the College World Series. Had a su- successful weekend this past weekend. Just had we the are, one loss. Yeah, we are actually, we're not in the College World Series yet. We are in the NCAA playoffs. We had the regional last weekend with four teams. And uh, there was 16 regional sites. We were the winner of our regional. So we advanced to next weekend, which is the super regional. We'll be playing uh, James Madison. And then if we win that best of three series this weekend, then we advance to Oklahoma city for the college world series. Okay. And that would be our uh, fourth straight appearance. Nice. Do that. So, yeah. Before we wrap up, let's talk about what's next for these women who are, currently in the playoffs and, and play softball at college, what do they have to do? What's available to them after college? Well, you know, like any other Olympic sports, um, you know, there isn't a huge uh, professional opportunity um, that's going to uh, be available for a majority of them. A majority of them will go on to professional careers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, real estate agents, uh, business owners, whatever it is that they may pursue. But certainly um, for a small number that that want to continue to keep playing, they have the opportunity to play uh, in the MPF, um, the pro league. Um, There's been several pro leagues that have kind of come and gone and it kind of ebbs and flows. But there definitely is opportunity there here in the U.S. Um, There's opportunity to play over in the foreign countries, Japan and Italy. um, Netherlands all have um, pro leagues where a lot of the athletes from here in the U.S. are recruited to go over and play. And then certainly, you know, if if sports and coaching is really where they want to be, then there's great opportunity, obviously, to, to get built back into the network of trying to develop as a coach and work collegiately or at the high school level. That's great to see so many opportunities for the women that want to stay involved. 
Absolutely. Before we wrap up, I want to, I have a typical thing where I have like a final 20 questions. They're just little odd, funny questions. And I want to go through those before I let you go this evening. Okay. Um, let me start. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? <laughs> uh, we play this game all the time with my team. Uh, instantaneous travel. Oh, nice. If you could per- pick a personal theme song, what song would you choose? Uh, Christina Aguilera, Candyman. Who was your first celebrity crush? <laughs> Probably would have been Chris- uh, Christopher Reeves. Oh, okay. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? I would say probably Martin Luther King Jr. All right. What is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? This week? Um, oh, you know what? The the thing that I was uh, just, I loved, there was an article just this week in the LA Times about Rayford Johnson's, uh, the new um, museum exhibit with LA 84. And uh, I, I'm a huge fan and admirer of Rayford Johnson and, and his entire family, actually. So um, it was it was really amazing to see. But one thing that I learned that I didn't know was that Rayford Johnson was with Bobby Kennedy when he was shot. And he actually grabbed the gun out of Sir Han Sir Han's hand um, there at the assassination um, here in L.A. And uh, that was just overwhelmingly just so interesting uh, to realize that that this athlete was so involved in um, in politics and in change trying to change the world that uh, he was really around Bobby Kennedy and at that period of time it's amazing yeah that's pretty cool I'm gonna have to check that article out you said LA Times yeah and it was this week I believe it was uh, yesterday or today uh, yesterday or Monday Oh, yesterday was Monday. I don't know. Yesterday or the day before. I know you're busy coaching right now, but do you have a streaming obsession? Do you have something you're watching on TV? <laughs> well, Game of Thrones, you know, was uh, till last night was a pretty hot commodity. But, um, th- you know, there are several things that I, I really have gotten into. There was um, a great show, Jane Fonda's show with Grace and Frankie. I mm-hmm. love that. Um, I really... Uh, thought that was super funny but i you know i I obscure things i i like to watch documentaries but i also like to watch comedies and uh, certainly the game of thrones um was something that i had not watched at all until earlier this year and i binge watched um six seasons in about a month so uh, wow i became a big fan pretty quickly which fictional character would you like to meet in real life oh wow Huh. Well, feeding right off of that, I would say uh, Jon Snow. Nice. <laughs> if animals could talk, which animal would be the most annoying? <laughs> uh, probably a crow. Who inspires you? Oh, so many people. But uh, who inspires me? Um, well, you know, uh, Billy Bean. Um, gosh, Billy Jean King. Um, are, are two that, that obviously with LGBT sports backgrounds that really I just, I'm inspired by the work that they're continuing to keep doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the big picture, um, you know, in the real world uh, beyond that. Um, I, I think Reese Witherspoon is just hilarious and amazing. And, and I'm so inspired by her and Ellen 
and um, Oprah are three three women that I just think um, do so much with so much kindness and passion. And it just I love that they can do great things while still being really kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty powerful. That's cool. That's a great answer. What is your favorite word? <laughs> uh, conviction. What is your least favorite word? Mm, lazy. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Passion. What turns you off? Mm. Arrogance. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> um, I don't like to curse, and my team knows this. Um, my uh, my favorite curse word. Um, shut the front door. <laughs> <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Uh, I love piano music. What sound or noise do you hate? That's a good one. Um, yeah, probably, I mean, what most people say, like screeching on a chalkboard, it's pretty annoying okay. and brutal. Yeah. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, well, I would, I would love to be able to at some point be um, working full-time in uh, sports advocacy. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Um, I don't know. I, 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 so I look at it. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of great things to do. Um, but I probably, I don't really like to be wet and cold. So I would probably say probably something that would be like, uh, on the open seas, a fisherman on the open, you know, deep sea fisherman probably would be miserable for me. Okay. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. Nice. My final question is one that I, I like to ask to um, your answer really goes to 12 or 13 year old kids okay. that are struggling with their own sexuality. What's the one thing that you like to tell them that could possibly help them? Um, one, a couple of things that I, first of all is you're not alone. Um, and uh, it does get better. And those are a little bit generic, but I would say even beyond that is that at some point you're going to realize that being different is actually your greatest asset. That's great. Well, Kirk, I appreciate your time so much. You've been great. I've, uh, I've just enjoyed this. Thank you. That's great. I appreciate it. I enjoyed the questions and the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode with Kirk Walker. I had a lot of fun talking with him. I hope you enjoyed listening. His love for women's sports, I think, came through in our talk. And I hope you got something out of it. I hope you're able to support UCLA Bruins softball team in the College World Series. I know I'll be rooting for him and watching on TV. Anyways, tune in next episode when I talk to Africa's first inclusive gay rugby club, the Josie Cats. And I talk to one of the founding members, Puma, and the touch manager, Jason. Anyways, have a good one and see you next time.